Well, hey everyone, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Unfortunately, I have not yet recovered from my cold. So um, please excuse any sniffles or tissues or anything, but I'm really happy to be with y'all. And especially since we have so many new people talking about the chapter working with others on page 89 of the big book. Um, and if you're new, just, and they're saying, well, this doesn't pertain to me. This chapter is for sponsors and I'm not there yet. Lots of good information with for new people, for sponsors, and everyone in between for all of us. So we're starting on page 89 with one of my favorite lines in the book. Starts out by saying, practical experience shows nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. So that they're telling us we get immunity from compulsive eating if we work intensively with other compulsive eaters. I mean, that's a pretty radical promise. If you think about immunity, you think about, right, if there's a virus and we get a shot, we have immunity. We are safe and protected. So this tells us that this will give us immunity. We will be safe and protected. And I think that's really important because a lot of times, you know, someone, let's say she's new, will start out and say, um, I was absent. I was good today. And I would say, no, no, no. This isn't a question of good or bad. It's either we are protected by God or we're not protected by God. And the way we are protected, we have immunity, is intensive work with others. Well, now what qualifies me to work intensively with others? Can I just go to one meeting, hear that, and then go out and get 40 sponsors? Well, no, of course not. Step 12 tells us what qualifies us. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we then tried to carry this message of the 12 steps in this book to other compulsive eaters. So it's basically work the steps. As a result, we have a spiritual experience. And in order to stay safe and protected, we work with others. Now, um, Bill Wilson talks about in Bill's story that the moment he made up his mind to go through with this process, he had the curious feeling that the obsession was removed, which in fact it was. And that was my experience and that was a lot of people's experience. So what seems to happen is that as soon as we genuinely embark on these steps, we become protected so long as we work on them quickly and thoroughly. And then when we're done, we stay protected by doing steps 10, 11, and of course, 12. Okay. I'm not going to spend that much time on every sentence. Don't worry. So then they go ahead and tell us that it works. Helping others works when other things fail. And they say, carry this message. What message? These 12 steps, that message, not another message. That's not guaranteeing us anything this message. And it says, you can help when no one else can. Remember, they are very ill. So guys, if we're sponsoring and someone picks up, we don't read them the riot act. They're ill, right? If someone did something they shouldn't because they have a brain tumor, we would have empathy. And we need to have empathy for the still suffering compulsive eater, not enabling, but empathy. And then they give us some beautiful promises. Life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others. Few things are better than watching a sponsee help other people. 
to watch loneliness vanish in both myself and seeing it vanish in other people, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. It says, this is an experience you must not miss. You, We know you will not want to miss it. How do they know it? How do they know what I'm going to want or not want? Because they know if I work these steps, I am going to be radically changed, that God is going to do a renovation job to my heart and I won't be selfish and self-centered anymore. And I really will want this, to have a life helping others and seeing them help others and hanging out with people who are helping others. And they say frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot in our lives. And I think those of us who were just in LA this past weekend can attest to that. Like being together, it's something magical. So it says, okay, here's how you go about finding people. You know, they said you ask doctors, ministers, hospitals. Um, it was pretty hard in those days. Now it's a little easier, right? Because generally we can go to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting um, or another 12-step-based meet meeting, and we can find people who are looking for help. So we have it easier than they did. And they say, don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. It's not my job. I don't get credit if I go to God and say, hey, God, I helped 10 people recover this, this week, this month, this year, uh-uh, or to try to reform or change anyone. No, that's not my job. My job is to simply do God's will. And it's God's will that I try to carry this message. That's it, plain and simple. Takes the pressure off, but keeps the responsibility on. And they tell us we should cooperate, never criticize. Um, I think that extends to other people's food plans. I hear so often people say, oh, I was told I couldn't have this, you know, arbitrarily told I couldn't have this, that no one should ever have, I don't know, wheat, um, artificial sweeteners, whatever. And I just say that other people's food plans are none of my business. So I think we have to be really careful that just because I can't handle a certain thing like gum, I don't chew gum, um, but I have no right to tell everybody who ever wants to work 12 steps that they can never chew a piece of gum. I just know that I can't. And I encourage people to be honest and say, mm, if you're like me and you chew one piece of gum and then you put another one in five minutes and then another piece five minutes later, it shouldn't be on your food plan. Um, but I think we don't criticize. I think we have to be really careful about judging other people's food plans. And again, they say to be helpful is our only aim. Page 90, it gives us some really good directions if we're sponsoring or attempting to sponsor. Um, the first thing it says is find out all you can about him. I always wanna find out about people. Are you married? Do you have kids? What's your religion? How long have you been coming to OA? What have you tried to do that's worked, that hasn't worked? What's your binge patterns like? I want to find out about them so I can try to help them. But something important, it says, if he doesn't want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. So sometimes I'll meet someone at a meeting and I'll say, are you willing to go to any lengths? And they'll say, no. And I'll say, okay, what are you not willing to do? And she'll say, well, I'm not willing to put the food down. And I'll say, really? 
Are you not willing or are you not able? Because it's different, right? Page 24 of our book says that there comes a point in the life of every abnormal drinker, abnormal eater, where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. So usually someone says, oh yeah. And I say like, if your fairy godmother could come and wave a magic wand and remove the food obsession, would you tell her to go away? And they'd say, no, like I want that. It's like, great. So the question is, are you willing to do the work? But every now and then, I think it's only happened once where I met someone who says, yeah, I don't really wanna stop binging. I just don't wanna stop. And we are not there for that person. They're, they can come to meetings, they can hang out, but they are not um, someone that we should that is qualified to be be sponsored because the qualification, as we'll see in a couple paragraphs, has to be willing to go to any lengths. That means willing to go to meetings, willing to put our food in a measuring cup and on a scale, things like that. So again, it says, if he doesn't want to stop, don't try to persuade him. And but again get a good idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, his religious leaning, why? To see how to approach them, to get an idea of what they're like. And it says, sometimes it's wise to wait until the person goes on a binge. Really? Like that's kind of, that may sound a little harsh, but they say no it's better to risk it. Why? Because if I've got a couple weeks of abstinence and I think I got this licked, I'm really not going to listen. But if I say, if I just binged five minutes ago and I feel like I can't stop, I'm going to listen. And by the way, um, that's what happened with me. I was binging. I was stuffing bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door at a friend's house before a meeting. I went to a meeting and I was so desperate there that when I took a sponsor and I took a tough as nail sponsor and I was asked, what are you willing to do to recover? I said, whatever you tell me. And I meant it because I was in a bad way. And by the way, nobody said to me, get 48 hours worth of abstinence, get 72 hours worth of abstinence and then come back. I was ready. I was willing and I, and I got sponsored. So it says, then we ask a person, are you willing to quit for good? Not just to lose like 20 pounds and look good at our high school reunion. So that boy who dumped us when we were 16 feels bad. Uh-uh. Quit for good and go to any extreme to do so. And then if he says yes, then we can continue. So page 58 gives us two requirements, right? For someone who we can sponsor. So not everyone who says, I want a sponsor is entitled to a sponsor according to the big book. The two requirements, page 58, if you've decided you want what we have, and what do we have? A spiritual experience as the result of these steps. If you want that and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, willing to do whatever it takes to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And if it says no, bottom of page 90, if a person says no, it says, don't force yourself upon it. Basically, if someone says, you know what, I'm not willing to go to any length, we don't say, well, let's try it. It's like, no, if they're not willing to go to any length, no. I believe according to page 58, I'm not allowed to sponsor that person. 
page 91 again, it says, call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. We don't give false hope. We don't say, don't worry, just keep coming. It will get better. Yes, a person should keep coming. It's always better to come than to not come. But just coming does nothing. Imagine if I were diabetic and I went to Diabetics Anonymous meeting and there were like a hundred diabetics in a room with me, all talking about diabetics and insulin, but I didn't go home and inject the insulin. I would not get one bit better. In fact, I would get worse. And that was me for six and a half years. I went to meetings. I never stopped going, um, but I did not work the steps and I never got one bit better. So then it talks about what I call the Starbucks conversation. You meet someone at Starbucks or something or over Zoom and you have a conversation. You talk about your own drinking habits, your own food habits, the symptoms, the experiences you had. Um, it says like if he's in a light mood, you tell humorous stories, right? I've got like my my chocolate cake story. I was traveling in Europe and a friend and I were staying at a host's house for the weekend and every, the family was taking a nap in the afternoon and we saw a chocolate cake in the refrigerator and my friend and I like ate the whole cake. I had no concern for the family or anything else. And then when the wife came out, she's like scratching her head like, God, I, I could have sworn I baked a chocolate cake. And we were like, oh, we don't know. Don't worry. I mean, it's like we didn't care. I didn't care about other people. So it says, we tell enough so the people know we know what we're talking about, that we used to have this problem. Um, and then we say, yeah, I realized I was a compulsive eater. I had a problem. Page 92 says, tell them how baffled you were, how you learned you were sick. Give them an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show them the mental twists which leads to the first drink of a spree. Very important to explain to someone how that mental twist works. I'm gonna give like a 30 second version. If anyone wants to know, I, I'm happy to give you the 10 minute version. You know, basically the reason we don't do harmful things is because our memory protects us. I'm severely allergic to cats stored in my memory or data points of cat induced asthma attack. So if I'm a, someone invites me to her house, I will always ask if she has a cat. And if she says yes, really quickly, my memory grabs the data points. You went near a cat and you had an asthma attack. You went into a pet store and you had a sinus infection. You went to a cat and you got really sick. Generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. But when it came to food, that same mechanism didn't work. I would, it would be in there. You say you're going to eat one cookie, but you ate the whole box. You say you're just going to have a couple, but you ate all of them. You said you're just going to do this, but you ate all of it. You made yourself throw up. You were miserable. You gained weight. Stop. Don't do it. But when the thought tries to go across to my conscious mind where I make my decisions, the bridge is broken and the thought can't get across. And I have no protection against taking the first compulsive bite. So it's really important that we be able to articulate, not that example, you know, for everyone, because I'm sure most of y'all don't have cat allergies, but to be able to explain the mental twist, 
how we have no effective mental defense against the first compulsive bite. And if we do it well, and the person's a real compulsive eater, then they should be saying, I do that too. That happens to me too. And it says, okay, once you're satisfied, the person is a real compulsive eater, dwell on the hopelessness of this, how it's hopeless. Show them the strange mental condition, how willpower doesn't work. Don't tell her she's a compulsive eater. Let her draw her own conclusion. But again, it's a little different. If someone shows up in an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, she probably has an idea of what compulsive eating is. But I have found that most people do not understand what powerlessness is. So when we want to help people, it's really important that we're able to articulate it um, I did a full description of the broken bridge and it's on our website under other resources. So you can go and just like print it out and see if it makes sense to you. And if it doesn't call me and I'll, and I'll try and help. So again, it says bottom of page 92, continue to speak of alcoholism, compulsive eating as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind, which accompany it. I think that's so interesting. It's like the body the physical and the mental parts of it are like side dishes. They're like an accompaniment because what we learn as we go through these steps is the real problem is a spiritual problem, right? Chapter five tells us once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So I say, talk about it. Talk about the, the condition of the body, right? The, the trigger foods, the alcoholic foods, whatever it is, how we react differently to food. But there's a problem with our mind too, right? Like I have a problem with cats. My body reacts in a bad way to cats, but I don't have a mental problem with cats. If I did, and I kept thinking this time will be different, I'd be using my inhaler a whole lot more. Um, and people would say, Janet, you're crazy. Why do you keep going to pet stores if you know you're allergic to cats? And I said, but this time will be different. This time I'll be able to be around a cat and I'll be okay. You'd say, that's insane. That's the kind of insanity we have. So they say, tell them about the body, tell them about the mind. And on page 93, they say, stress the spiritual feature freely. We're not afraid if someone's going to say, oh, no, 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 I don't like this spiritual part. Dr. Bob, one of the co-founders of this program, said the whole program is spiritual. So if someone says, I don't like the spiritual part of this program, the whole program is spiritual. Um, says, okay, he may be an agnostic or atheist. So he, it says, make it emphatic. He does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. So that says two things. A person has to work toward having a conception. It's not okay to just say, I don't believe in God and here I stay. A person has to be willing to believe in God, willing to work on a conception. Then we can help. You know, we can help with that. And it says it has to make sense. And I will go out on a limb here and say, a doorknob does not make sense. So when people say the doorknob can be your higher power, they are wrong. Or the group can be your higher power, it's wrong. Step three, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. How can I turn my will and life over to the care of a doorknob? And even a group, people say sometimes God says, means 
um, group of drunks. Do I really want to turn my life over to a group of drunks? And step seven, where we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Can a doorknob remove my shortcomings? And even the group, you all may really like me. Can you remove my shortcomings? You can't. You can't. So it's God. So it says it has to make sense. Then it says the main thing is he, two things. He'd be willing to believe in a power greater than himself. Why is that so important? right? You go to Weight Watchers, you don't have to believe in anything. Why is it important? Because page 46 tells us that our problem is lack of power. And if my problem is lack of power, the solution has to be a source of power stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And that's what's offered here. Um, a power greater than ourselves. And I love how it describes it. Um, now, let me just make sure I get it exactly right for you guys. It's on page 45. The main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. A doorknob can't solve my problem. And a group, you can, you know, kind of listen to me, help me with my steps. But remember, we're not supposed to be life coaches and we're not supposed to be therapists for each other. Um, and you can't give me power. So we have to believe in a power, be willing to believe in a power greater than himself. And again, if a person is willing, chapter four is chock full of good advice, how we can go from willing to actually believing. Our God is so good that if we just give him willingness, he does something in our hearts so that we come to genuinely believe says, and that we live by spiritual principles. Um, there People come around and say, I thought I was a religious person. I've given my life to God. Why am I still binging? Because we all have to live by spiritual principles. The old line, faith without works is dead. What are spiritual principles? Well, first we have to be honest. If we're not honest, it's like we're taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across our hearts. God won't coexist with dishonesty and other spiritual principles, putting the welfare of others ahead of our own, self-sacrifice, tolerance. Um, Karen M., who comes here sometimes, put together a list of all the spiritual principles in the big book, and they're on our website under recovery resources or other resources. You can find a list of spiritual principles. Um, so going ahead, bottom of 93, it says, someone may be like really religious and have a lot more religious education and training and wondering like how I can add anything to what he or she knows. It says, but once we hit bottom, the person will be curious to say, how come I am so religious, but I'm still eating compulsively. And that was, that was me. I was, you know, eating compulsively. And I went to a meeting and someone said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I thought I was so religious and I just, it like hit me and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's all a house of cards. Like I, I don't have a great relationship with God. I may have a belief, but that does me nothing. I could believe in the power of insulin if I'm a diabetic, but if I'm not injecting it, the fact that I believe in insulin does nothing. So it says that a person like that may be an example of 
Faith alone is insufficient to be vital, to be alive. Faith has to be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. What does self-sacrifice mean? It means I'm giving something up in order to help someone else. Okay, so that's what we want to that's what we want to do. We want self-sacrifice, unselfish constructive action is helpful. And we tell the person, you may have faith, you may have knowledge. So it means what a person knows and what they believe, but he couldn't have applied it or he would not drink or he would not binge. How do we apply it? I think that's steps three through nine to start. We surrender everything to God. My, my right to tell lies. Um, what's my future? My kid's future. We surrender it. We clean up the wreckage of our past. And then we continue by cleaning up the wreckage of each day, praying and meditating to know God's will and help others. That's how we apply our faith. And they're very clear that we're not any particular faith or denomination. The, these are general principles common to most denominations. I think most religious, um, most religions would say we should be honest. We should love others. So then it says, we kind of tell them we what the program of action is. We explain what the 12 steps are. This is what I did. This is what, you know, I require my sponsees to do. We lay out the kit of spiritual tools at their feet. And then it says also, suggest how important it is that he placed the welfare of other people ahead of his own. What does that mean? The people in my life, I'm to think of, what would make them happy? What's good for their welfare? Sometimes, especially when we have kids, what's the best for their welfare isn't always what makes them happy. Um, but we think of the welfare of other people. I say, and then once we have this long talk, if he wants to work with someone else, that's fine. It says, if your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend, a friend. Um, sometimes I hear people say, my sponsor said, she's not my friend. I mean, that's not how I read this chapter. We're, we're friends. Um, yes, a sponsor gives direction, but we're friends. We're not on pedestals. We're friends. We laugh together. Um, we talk like we're friends. We should be friendly. It's not like, I'm here to, you know, don't say yes, but say yes, ma'am. No, no, we're friends. And it says, okay, maybe he doesn't want to work the steps now. I'm in the middle of 94. Um, but you've disturbed him about the question of alcoholism, compulsive eating. They say, that's good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. Why? Because he'll be more likely to follow your suggestions. So again, we never sugarcoat this illness. And it says the person may give reasons why he doesn't need to follow this program. I mean, that was me when I first read the book after someone finally told me how to work the steps. I said, yeah, there's this one amend I don't want to make. And um, she did exactly what it says. It says, don't contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. What I was told is that's a nine step thing. Can you trust that by the time you're at the ninth step, you'll be a different person? And I said, okay. 
And I did make that amend. And then it says, if he shows interest, lend him your copy of this book. Give him a chance to think it over. Um, so these days, again, most people we meet are through OA and they have this book and they've read this book. Um, so what I do is I give them something to do. Like, okay, you know, let's say you mean business here, go do something. And I make them like suffer through one of my podcasts, take notes, and then come back to me with three things that stand out to them the most so we can discuss it. So I want to, I want them to put in a little effort. Sometimes it's like, okay, here's a list of recovered people. I want you to call three people. Um, sometimes it may be, if they've never read the book, it may be read the first 164 pages and call me when you're done. We want to give them, I think, something to do. And it says, we don't rush because if he has trouble later, he's likely to say you rushed him, right? We don't want to do that. If someone, we want to gauge if someone is, is ready and here's why, um, if they're not ready, then they may go away and say, oh, these 12 steps, this Overeaters Anonymous thing doesn't work. But it's not that it doesn't work. They weren't willing to work it correctly to do it all. Um, remember, half measures avail us nothing. So then it doesn't work. And you know, then later when they are ready and desperate, they may, instead of saying, oh yeah, there's this program, but I wasn't ready now, but now I am. They may say, Oh yeah, there's this program. I tried it. It doesn't work. And it says again, never talk down to an alcoholic, to a compulsive eater for a moral or spiritual hilltop. Again, you know, I've heard people say we're all, what is it? Bozos on the bus. I hate that expression. Like I'm not a bozo. Um, but what I would say is a sponsor is maybe someone who just got on the bus a couple stops before the next person. That's it. We're on the same bus, but we're not bozos, right? We are beloved children of God. One person just got on the bus a couple stops before the other. That's it. Um, both going to the same destination, spiritual experience. It says, lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection, spiritual tools, meetings, phone calls, food plans. Those are all tools, but they aren't spiritual tools. The spiritual tools are prayer, meditation, surrender. You know, we lay them out for their inspection and we tell them how it worked for us. And again, it says, offer him friendship and fellowship. Even if the person isn't ready, we can still be friends. We can still have fellowship. And then tell him if he wants to get well, you will do anything to help. And I think um, we'll stop there tonight and I'll pick it up and finish the chapter next week. So that's all I got for tonight. Thanks.